Good morning, Willow Hills. My heart goes out. I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here at the church. It's really good to see all of you and to be together and worshiping with all of you. My heart goes out to Josh and other diehard Minnesota fans. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. I've got my son-in-law is a, just a crazy fanatic, and I know others who are really into it. And, and I, I, I marvel at your tenacity. It's like um, every year, this could be the year, this could be the year, you know, and they watch, put all those hours watching into it and get it into it, and then every year. It's like, it's like we ought to change the name of our state from the uh, Minnesota land of 10,000 lakes to the Minnesota land of the almost great, because we're always almost great. We're good. We get in the playoffs, but we never go any farther than that. We're, we're almost there. The almost state. Uh, my heart goes out to you. I, to me, it was like, 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 like it, 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 every fall, you start dating the same girl, and every year, she brings you so far and then dumps you. <laughs> and next year, you think it's going to be different, and, and you get your heart handed to you on a platter, but you're back the next year. It's like, this could be the one. To me, it's a... Uh, I just don't have the emotional space to invest in it. I'm the worst fair-weather friend. If they're in the playoffs, and if it's, if it's convenient, I'll watch it. Uh, and I'll really get excited if they get in the Super Bowl. But I'm not going to, I just don't have the space to let, get let down so much. Anyways, I, can't, I just can't. I have to guard my heart. I'm, I'm vulnerable. So we're doing this thing here. We're looking at, um, oh, and, uh, by the way, we're going to have a quest Q&A time on uh, the 22nd of January. It's Wednesday, 22nd. Uh, we're talking about the problems in the Bible, errors, contradictions, inaccuracies, and things like that. I'm trying to, uh, it's, it's based largely on the book that I uh, wrote um, called Inspired Imperfection, how the, how the problems of the Bible enhance its divine authority. Uh, and, and, and so we have a two-week series that we're kind of doing cover, covering that. Of course, we're not covering most that's in the book, mind you. You're going to want to go out and buy the book because this is hardly even an infomercial. I mean, really, there's so much wisdom in that book. I can hardly scratch the surface, of course. But, but, but we just thought it would be good for everybody to kind of hear what that book's about. Uh, better to hear it from the horse, horse's mouth. Is that how you say it? Hear it from the horse's mouth. Okay. Oh, Wilbur. So uh, I'm going to, this horse is going to tell you what's in that book. Uh, Though it won't be clear what I'm saying has to do with anything to do with the errors of the Bible or anything uh, for a few minutes, so just hang in there. Because I want to start by talking about this. Good friend of mine, Bruxy Cavi, I just love that guy. He's my hippie hubby, and he's just a, a fun guy. I love him. Uh, he comes down here, talks at our church once in a while, and I go up there once in a while, and they're working on the Jesus Collective, which is going to be the hub of this movement, and it's a lot of good things that are happening there. You'll find out more about that later on. Well, he comes down here once in a while and, 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 and preaches. And last time he was down here, maybe it was the time before, I don't know. But he was showing us this tattoo. Were you here when he showed us this tattoo? He's got Leviticus 19-something or other, which is the verse that says you shall not ever get a tattoo. And that's so it's his, his little rebellion, his little kind of, it's a good discussion starter. It's a cool tattoo. I think he got another one too. So he comes down and brags about every time his cool tattoo, well, just out of sheer jealousy, not really, I decided, he's got, he, he, he's got Leviticus written on his arm, but I went to a tattoo shop called Leviticus, and I got me a tattoo. And, and, and he, he, here's how it looks like. Take a look at this. There you go. There you go. Check it like that. Now, see, that's, it, it's got these symbols on it. And if you could read it, uh, it, it, it uh, across it has contrary, subcontrary, then diagonally, it's, it's, it's contradictory, and you have altern and subaltern. It's all these different relationships. Uh, it's a logical formula that I and two friends kind of came up with about 20 years ago, and it solves a lot of the different philosophical problems. Um, and I just always thought it looked so cool. 
that if, if I ever got convinced that this thing was actually valid and it was not likely to get refuted, that I was going to tattoo this on my back. Uh, and, and so for the last 20 years, I, I've, I published a couple articles on it and stuff like that, and I've heard some criticisms of it, whatever. But this guy, Elijah Hess, he wrote his doctoral dissertation defending this, and he's come up with a couple articles uh, as well. And man, if you ask me, in my humble opinion, he slam dunks it. So he convinced me that this thing is valid. So this last Tuesday, I went out and got myself a tattoo. Uh, it's a, and there you are. Woo! Because when you're 62, you, you, you've earned the right to do some stupid stuff, right? <laughs> No, I had no idea how stupid this was. Because I, I, I've talked to people with tattoos, and, and they'll have things, say things like, oh, it's kind of an irritating, burning sensation, you know, but it's a prickly sort of thing, but you get used to it. So I think, you know, I'm a stud. I, I, I have a high tolerance for pain. I can deal with prickly hot and, and, and a little slightly unpleasant. So I went in there thinking that. In fact, I went in there, uh, and I had my, my headphones and my playlist, you know, and I, was gonna, I had some Jesus music, you know, beautiful Jesus music. I was going to soar out there into heaven with Jesus and push past that little prickly feeling, you know. And, and I even told the guys I was getting ready. I said, hey, I'm pretty tired. If I fall asleep, you know, just keep on working on me. That's what he did. <laughs> you have no idea, do you, guy? Three minutes later, I feel this hot, searing razor go into my skin and start flaying me. And I'm like, what the? What? Okay, I, who's got tattoos here? Raise your hand if you got tattoos. Okay, you folks, look around. You respect these people, man. You, re, you respect these people. They are badasses. I mean, that is painful. I was like, oh my gosh. So I, I, I was so surprised at how this was not a, a warm prickly feeling. That this was torture. It was all I could do to not imagine a knife, a razor cutting up my back, just carving me out. It was, oh! And so here's the thing, is that I, I used to be able to deal with a lot of pain. I have a high threshold for pain. I used to run ultra marathons. I like to push myself to, to the edge of pain. I like that. Uh, it's like, bring it on! And I but I had to get to a, I don't know there's any other word for it other than sort of a, a badass place. To get there, it's like, you, 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 like when I was doing ultra marathons, it's like, bring it on, come on, come on, I can do, that's the best you got. You know, you got to have to, you quit fighting the pain, you embrace it, right? And, uh, uh, and so I'm trying to embrace this, but the trouble is, I had a motivation for doing it when I was running. I like, I want to see how far and how fast I could go. I really, that was important, so you put up with the pain because it's important to you. Well, frankly, this tattoo isn't that important to me. <laughs> see, I, I, I thought it was cool. I thought it'd look cool. It'd be cool to have on my back. Even cool enough to put up with some prickly hot feelings for a while. He said this might be for three hours. That's why I brought my phase-out music. You know, two minutes into this, I am having this terrifying thought. I have two hours and 58 more minutes of this to endure. It was, all, it was like panicky. I, and it was sheer pride that kept me going. It was sheer pride. Because I don't care that much about the tattoo. Yeah, I'll put up with a warm prickly. But I never would get tortured for three hours to have this. It's like, no, it, but now here I am on this table and I can't wimp out. I, I, I mean, there's these kids, you know, 20, 25 year old, and they're getting their tattoo. There's one guy's in a whole arm and he's sort of sitting there. He's not even wincing. Like, just, just, I, what would it look like if Pastor Boyd all of a sudden gets off off the table? Oh, it's hot! It's terrible! Oh my! I never thought it was going to be that bad! But that's what I wanted to do. That's exactly what I wanted to do. And it was everything I could do to not do that. <laughs> so, so about 10 minutes into it, I finally, I had to take a break. 
It's like, okay, wait, 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 wait. And as soon as I started hearing, feeling that razor, I'm thinking to myself, all of those letters that are in that, all those letters, every one of them is a new, and then all those arrows. And just before I laid down, he talked me into expanding it two inches in every direction. I'm like, why did I do that? There's another half hour of pain. Oh my gosh. So I had to take a break and I had to, I had to do a reframe. And I said, okay, sorry, I'm, I'm a little surprised by how much this hurts. I, so I, 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 gotta go, I gotta go someplace in my head. And, and so I had to get in touch with that badass attitude. And, and, and the only thing I could work on, I don't have any motivation other than the fact that this is entirely absurd and stupid that I'm doing this. And it's absurd that I have too much pride to stop doing this. And that's why I'm doing this. I'm 62 and I get to do absurd, stupid stuff once in a while, all right? There you have it. Bring it on. So I, and forgive me, and I hope you understand this, but there's a time for everything, a season for everything. And when you're being tortured, that's not the time for beautiful praise music. It just doesn't work. I, I, I was, so I had, to, I had to switch out my beautiful praise music. I had to switch in some of the heaviest metal I could possibly find. I turned it up full blast, put a bunch of Jolly Ranchers on my mouth, and said, bring it on, come on, bring it on. And see, if you embrace the pain and stop fighting it, 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 it I'm not going to say, it, it, I, it, was, it was a nightmare all the way through, but I was at least a little bit more manageable once you're embracing the thing, all right? And see, I, 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 I did that probably because it's stupid, but also because that hexagon tells a story. It, it tells a story about, uh, I, I think the, well, actually, the story tells, I'm going to, I, I, I am going to put up an essay on my website, renew.org with a K, R-E-K-E-N-N-E-W. I wanted to have it done by this week, but as I started to write, I, 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 I want to title it, The Hexagon Made Simple, so everyone could understand it, and putting it in simple language should not be quite a lot more difficult than I thought. It never occurred to me before I actually got the tattoo that I'm going to be walking on a beach, and now every time my shirt's off, people are going to be asking me, hey, what's that hexagon about? And I don't have the elevator speech. <laughs> How do you reduce this to anything intelligible? So I'm going to have that on the website uh, sometime here. But it tells a story about the inadequacy of Aristotle's square of opposition and how it's prejudiced towards determinism and how will and will not are not contradictory, but they're contraries. And, and if, you, if, if you take the subaltern relationships of might and might not and conjoin them and they're conjointly true, they refute both. Uh, X will happen and X will not happen. It's a beautiful story. I'll explain it all later on. <laughs> it's not a story worth being tortured for, but it's a cool story. All right. And there is a, and now that I've had it done, I'll tell you that uh, it feels kind of cool to have had it done. To have, to have gone, to, to tattoo folks, I, I get you. I get it. I, it's like, dang, I, I did that. <laughs> and it, so there you go. So he, he, here's another scar on me. I'm showing you a lot of my body today. Parts <laughs> of my body you've never seen before. So here's another scar, and it tells a story. Uh, it's not quite as cool as the hexagon scar. That is my belly. You're looking at your pastor's belly here, my belly button. Uh, not exactly a 12-pack or even a 6-pack, maybe a 2-pack. <laughs> Anyways, don't be looking at my flubber. Look at the scar. See, that, that scar tells a story. And it tells a story about how I was a moron when I was 12 years old. Uh, I, there's a steep hill by my house, and, and, and uh, there's like four power lines, that, poles that were going straight down this hill. And us bright... Sixth graders would, 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 would get on our sleds and go down this very steep hill and we'd do slalom sledding in between the poles. Because that's what we saw people do on television with, with skis. Except when they do it on television with skis, their poles move when you run into them. These poles don't. 
And so my dad had seen us doing that, and he says, what are you, idiots? And we're like, yeah. Uh, he's like, if you don't make one of those cuts, that could, you, could, you could die up there. And so he forbid me to ever go down that hill uh, by those power lines. Did I listen to him? No, of course not. And so that one day I was going down these, going through the power lines. And da, da, da. The last one, I didn't quite make the cut. I wrapped myself around that thing. must have been going 20, 25 miles an hour because it was a steep hill. Crushed my insides completely. Had to rush me to the hospital, do exploratory operation, open me up. And I, my, I, I had a little spleenectomy is all over the place in my... Do you know what? Your spleen, if, if you smash it, its parts will attach to your in, insides and they'll keep on spleening. <laughs> they do what spleens do. They keep on growing, so I've got all these spleenies in there. It's like... Now you have way too much information about me. <laughs> so it, it, the scars tell a story. You know, here's the thing. As a kid, I was always really embarrassed by that scar. Uh, I, I didn't want to ever, like when we had swim class and stuff for gym, uh, especially if there's going to be girls who are going to be seeing this, I would make up excuses to get out of the class. I didn't want anyone to ever see this. Uh, it was, and, and, you know, they were, they, were, they were a lot better at doing these operations now than they used to be. But it, it stuck out quite a bit, and it was thick. And, is, and so I was always ashamed of it. I always had to keep my shirt on. Now I keep my shirt on for other reasons. Uh, <laughs> that have nothing to do with scars. I'm clearly okay with you seeing the scars. It's the rest of my body I don't want you to look at. But, um, but it, it, so it was always embarrassing. I wanted to hide it. And I always assume that certainly when, when, when the resurrection happens, at the end of the age, when this history is all wrapped up, uh, and, and, and God's kingdom comes in fullness and, and God's love is defined every square inch of the cosmos and the glory is all there. Certainly when that happens, uh, my resurrected body will not have this scar. All right, because a scar, a scar is something you're not supposed to have. You're not supposed to have this zipper running from your chest down to your belly button. It looks weird. And so clearly when the resurrection happens, it'll be gone. So you would think. Uh, and yet, um, we find that Jesus, after the resurrection... He still had his scars. Look at this in John 20. Uh, you know, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples. <clears throat> but Thomas just wasn't around when, when, when those appearances happened. And Thomas didn't believe him. Why they would make that up, he never explained, but he didn't believe him. And he says, he says this in John 20. Uh, he said, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I have the nail marks, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side. Unless I can do that, I will not believe. And what's amazing is that Jesus obliges him. Boom, Jesus appears and says, here you are, Thomas. You want to put your hands here and you want to put your, see where the scars are? I want to touch it inside. Um, which means that Jesus, the scars are still there. And I'm wondering why. And those scars would be ugly. They were created by Romans torturing this guy. And Romans were experts at that. The scars were there, spikes going into his hands or his wrists, spikes going into his, 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 his ankles, a spear going into his, his side. That would look ugly. And yet, Jesus, after the resurrection, still has them. Now, you, you might think that uh, maybe Jesus just manifested those supernaturally for Thomas's sake. And that's possible. But that makes Jesus' resurrected body seem like kind of a ghost, like he can just morph, like a shapeshifter or something. It gives it a sense of unreality. And in Luke, the resurrected Jesus says to them, uh, they think they're seeing a ghost. And Jesus says, a ghost? Do ghosts have flesh and blood such as you see me having? So he has a, the resurrected body is a perfected body, but it's a body. And I, I think this is a better explanation for why Jesus retains those scars. Sometimes scars, while they may look ugly, can accomplish beautiful things. 
So there's another place in the Old Testament where Yahweh talks about having scars. I want to look at it because it might shed some light on why Jesus has these scars, these imperfections, even though he's risen from the dead. It's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. Uh, It's Isaiah 49, where Yahweh talks about these scars. And and here's what he says. Zion, which is another word for Israel, has said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. The Israelites were feeling forsaken by God. But then the Lord says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no compassion on the child she has born. And even if she could forget, I cannot forget you. See, look, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your walls meaning your protection. Your welfare is always my concern. It's a very strange image. Hear the Lord speaking as a mother and says, look, a mother can't forget that she's nur- the child that she's nursing. But even if she could, my love is for you is greater than that of a human mother. Look at, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Probably meaning, I've engraved your name on the palm of my hands. And that's a very strange image. It's like, that wasn't a common practice anywhere. Where did this come from? It's so strange that some scholars have argued that this is a prophecy, prophesying about Christ's pierced hands. Which would be cool if, if that's correct, because... That means that here we have a passage that's portraying Christ as our Heavenly Mother, which is, I think, a very important reality to get in on. It's not talked enough about, but that's a different sermon. So even if it's not a prophecy, there's a parallel here. Why would Yahweh have the names of his children engraved on the palms of her hands? Why? And the answer is because they tell a story. Uh, And in this case, they tell a story of of a God who loves people more than any human mother ever could. Uh, Those that bleeding tells a story of the depth of God's love for his people, the patience of God for his people, God's willingness to come down to their level and work with them as they are, God's willingness to bleed for his people. They tell the story, and that story's beautiful. So even though the scars are ugly, they tell a story that needs to be told, the story of God's redemptive love uh, towards his own people. It is, in fact, the story of the cross. The cross is... The cross bears all the scars in the world, bears all the imperfections, all the sin, all the brokenness of the world. It's all there. And so on one level, it's a very ugly story, because the story of the world's sin is ugly. And yet it's a beautiful story, because it's a story about a God who's willing to dive into that. Uh, The wounds of the cross, the ugliness of the cross, the sin that's on the cross, the brokenness of the cross, it testifies to a God who's willing to go to any extreme necessary to redeem his people, to reconcile the world unto himself, to undo the brokenness of this world. He loves people as they are in their brokenness. He uses them as they are in their brokenness. And the process of doing it, he transforms them into what he knows they they can be. Those scars tell a beautiful story. And, And that story is still being told to this day. The cross is still doing its work to this day. So Paul says this in, in, in Colossians chapter 1. He says, uh, Colossians chapter 1, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of it. And through him, through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The work of the cross is like, when Jesus dies, it's an explosion of, of, of a perfect revelation of God's self-sacrificial character. It's an explosion of, of unsurpassable love. And it's like that's reverberating throughout the cosmos, Paul is saying. It's at work right now to reconcile all things, to bring shalom, bring peace to everything. The word shalom basically means harmony, wholeness, things operating the way God intended them to operate. 
And so the work of the cross right now is, is reverberating somehow, some way. We're not told how, but reverberating throughout the cosmos to rid it of everything that's inconsistent with the perfect character of God and to, and to then beautify everything to make it consistent with the beautiful character of God. The cross is doing this. And on earth, it looks like God partnering with his church to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. On earth, it looks like us being conduits of this cross-like love to minister to people, to bring wholeness where there's brokenness and hope where there's despair. To, to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. So that's how we do on the earth what's going on throughout the cosmos, and it's all centered on the cross. And see, as you can think of, of, of the love of God that's revealed on the cross as something like, like God comes to this fragmented cosmos. It's all torn apart. It's all disheveled. And, and yet that, that love then starts to reunify everything. God's bringing shalom. God's reconciling all that needs to be reconciling. Bringing together things that have been previously estranged. And, and so that love is like the glue that holds everything together. And that beautifies everything. And does it in our life and he's doing it throughout the cosmos. And this, our scars that we've acquired in this life I think are going to be part of that beautification process. The, the, the mistakes and the errors and the failures of our life are beautified by God for the same reason that the cross is beautiful. And see, once we can begin to appreciate that, we'll see how the errors and the mistakes and the failures and the imperfections in the Bible, well, they're also beautiful for the same reason that the cross is beautiful. They bear witness to a God who's great enough so he doesn't need to perfect people before God uses them. They bear witness to a God who's humble, who identifies with his people. They bear witness to a God who perfectly loves people exactly as they are in all their brokenness. And that love transforms the brokenness into something beautiful. Praise God. A God who takes everything that was a disadvantage towards us and makes it, turns it into an advantage. So see, I, I, I was, Paul gets at, at this in the verse we looked at last week. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1, Verse 17. Here Paul is addressing the disunity at Corinth. And the disunity is there because different people have baptized different people at Corinth. And for some weird reason, some of the Corinthians were, were, had a greater allegiance to who baptized them than who did not. And so there's these divisions. And Paul initially goes, man, I'm sure glad I'm not part of that mess. I didn't baptize anybody except for the household of Chloe. But then he realizes that he misspoke. Because he has to stop and he goes, well, okay, I, I also did baptize the household of Stephanus. But then he again realizes that he somewhat misspoke because now he remembers that there were other people he baptized. He just can't remember who they were. So he ends by saying, hey, actually beyond Stephanus, I don't know who I baptized and who I didn't baptize, which completely undermines the point he was trying to make. Apparently he is part of the same mess that he was coming against. <laughs> but then he says this. He goes, it doesn't matter because Christ didn't send me to baptize. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. And then he says this, I think because he just made this mistake, he goes, and, and he sent me not to preach the gospel with eloquent wisdom, eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross would be robbed of its power. It's a good thing that I am not eloquent. And it's a good thing that I'm not wise. And it's a good thing that my memory isn't perfect. It's a good thing that I'm human and can make mistakes. Because if I wasn't human, if I didn't make these mistakes, if I was eloquent and was always wise, well then, that would rob the cross of its power. So the power of the cross is at work in Paul precisely because he's not eloquent and he's not wise. The disadvantage, it becomes an advantage. This passage would be less beautiful and, and less displaying of the power of, cross, of the cross if Paul had spoken eloquently, if Paul had remembered perfectly. If Paul had been inerrant, this passage would not be as powerful as it is. The error that Paul corrects, and it seems to me, folks, that 
this passage alone would refute the doctrine of inerrancy because here we have the Bible, the Word of God, this is a God-breathed passage, and it's telling us that this God-breathed passage is telling us that it made a mistake twice and had to correct it. All right? So there's at least two mistakes in the Bible, and they both got corrected by the same author who made them. There you go. What was my point? I don't know. I, it was, it was like, uh, he's making me. Oh, yeah. So Paul isn't embarrassed by his weakness. He's not embarrassed by his faulty memory, by the fact that he makes mistakes. He glories in those weaknesses. We saw some of that last week. He boasts in those weaknesses because he knows, and this is the power of the cross, is that when we're weak, then he is strong. When we look foolish, then he is wise. God always uses the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That's his modus operandi. The God who saves the world by dying on a cross is a strange God. He's uh, not your typical God. They're not the kind of God you'd expect. He doesn't fit the standard of perfection that we would fit any more than Jesus fit the standard of perfection of what a Messiah was supposed to be. Because this God it turns everything upside down by means of the cross. And, and so now the imperfections, the errors, the mistakes, inaccuracies, all the humanness of the Bible, well, it, it, it's not something you've got to be embarrassed by. It's there... To magnify the glory of the cross. The entire Bible, Jesus tells us this, is inspired to point us to the cross. Uh, the Bible, folks, the cross wouldn't be the beautiful revelation of God that it is if it didn't bear the sin of the world. It wouldn't be the beautiful revelation of God that it is if it wasn't that ugly, right? It wouldn't be the beautiful revelation of God that it is if the one who was on the cross didn't bear all that is sinful, all that is broken, all that is wrong, all that is fallible with humanity. So God's greatness, revealing himself on the cross, it's precisely because it's so ugly, because God is dying. It shows the God who's willing to dive that far into humanity, to dive into our fallibility, to dive into our imperfection, to dive into our sin, and dive into our curse. That's the, that's the kind of God God is as he's revealed on the cross. And what Paul is saying is that, well, that's, God breathed the entire Bible, ultimately to point us to the cross, and to transform us into the image of the cross, and so if the cross embodies all that is wrong, all that is imperfect, all that's sinful and broken in humanity, why do you think the Bible, who would ever think the Bible would be free of all that? It wouldn't have any human fallibility. It wouldn't have any, any imperfection. I submit to you that, look, if, 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 if the cross that the Bible is inspired to point us to, if the cross looks foolish and weak, and Paul tells us that it, it, it does, then we, the Bible that we've got, with all of its foolish and weak human aspects to it, its errors and contradictions and ordinary mistakes, that's exactly the kind of Bible you would expect because that's the kind of Bible that displays the power of the cross. Paul just said it. Are you following me on this? You following me on this? So what well, looks like a disadvantage, we think there's errors and problems and mistakes and accuracies in the Bible. We think, oh no, we've got to protect it. We've got to defend it. But I submit to you, no, leave it alone. It's fine just as it is. It's perfectly imperfect. For the same reason that the cross is perfectly imperfect. It's beautiful and it's ugly, but the ugliness, the scars, those Bible scars are there for a reason. They contribute to this beauty. So there's a lady who used to go to church here uh, years and years, years ago, um, and, and she had this heirloom. And the heirloom, uh, it was like a third, fourth generation thing, very prized in this family, but somehow it got broken. I think it was the vase. And so this lady desperately went to various people who were experts at fixing expensive heirloom stuff, and they all told her that they could improve it for sure, but... You'll never get rid of the cracks. It will never be the way it was. It will never be the, the same. Uh, we, we can touch it up and, and minimize the damage. Uh, you you want to hide those cracks as much as possible. They're defects. They lower the value of the thing. But uh, we can't get rid of them all together. And she was in, kind of in a state of despair. And then she came upon a person who uh, practiced 
I know I'm going to butcher this name. It's Japanese, but uh, it, it's uh, Kitsugi, Kitsugi art. Is that right? Kitsugi art. And here's what they do with Kitsugi. They don't try to restore your, your, your heirloom, your precious vase, whatever it is. Uh, you can't restore it. It's broken. That's, that, that's an irreversible thing. But what they instead do, instead of trying to get back to where it was, they try to improve it. Instead of being embarrassed by the cracks and hiding the cracks, they emphasize the cracks. They embrace the cracks. And they say, let's, let's highlight those things. And they use this, this, this uh, gold lac- lacquer. In fact, the kitsugi, the word means uh, uh, joined, uh, uh, joined gold. It's gold that joins things together. And so they create these works of art uh, and that, that, are, that are, are beautiful. Once you, to see the beauty of it, you have to let go of what you think that the vase was supposed to look like, what it used to look like. And now you see it for the beauty that it is. It's different. It still has all your old memories that an heirloom would have, but now it's got one more thing. It's got cracks. And those cracks can be beautiful if you let them be beautiful. They tell a story. And it's a story of uniqueness to this. A lot of folks who get their, their, their work restored with uh, Kitsugi art, uh, they talk about how it increases their love for, for their vase or their heirloom or whatever it is. Because they used to love, used, this used to be beautiful because of the kind of vase it was. But now it's beautiful because it is this particular vase with this particular history, with this particular story to tell. And, and a lot of folks find that precisely because now their vase tells a story of brokenness and restoration, they bond with it more. They have a more of a love for it. Uh, that vase is participating in the same kind of restoration that we ourselves are going through. Uh, this is like what it's like in all of our lives. God is a kitsugi master. Coming to a fractured creation, and the love of Christ is that golden liqueur starts putting things together, right? It starts bringing harmony. He brings good out of evil. He brings hope where there was despair. And those cracks now, those scars now, all the wrongs that were done, all the disadvantages that we have, all the weaknesses that we have, all the things that we might be embarrassed from, all the things that we want to hide, the Lord is saying, no, 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 no. That's my material, man. That's, that's, how, that's what I work with. I'm a genius at, at, at bringing beauty out of that. You surrender that to me and watch what I can do. Yeah, you're all broken apart now, but I can put this back together in a way. Well, you're not trying to get back to where you were. No, this is an improvement over this. It's what God do in Romans 8.32. You know, in, in all things, however ugly, however bad, however much at fault you are, in all things, whatever mess you've made or whatever mess someone's making of you, in all things, Whatever those all things are, whatever the, the, the particular issues that you're struggling with, the alienation that you're struggling with, the faults that you're struggling with, the way that you were raised, or all the things that were done to you and all the things that you did to others, all of that, those cracks, those scars, everything that could possibly separate you from God, our job is to say, Lord, here, take this. Take it and, 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 and trust that he can make something beautiful with it. Uh, not that we're going to air, you know, air your dirty laundry in front of everybody, but all those, those scars and those wrongs and that sin, yeah, it shouldn't have happened, but now that it's happened... God can take it and make something beautiful out of it if you'll just surrender it over to him. And you don't even have to know how that would work. Who could possibly imagine how, what an heirloom would be like when, once it's restored in, in, in this uh, kitsune kind of a way? No, it's, 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 a, it's a masterpiece because it presents a new kind of beauty. And so it is with our life. I encourage us to invite Jesus in on the, the, the negative stuff. We ourselves, far more than we realize, tend to live in denial of stuff. We, we have the stuff, stuff in our life we don't want to look at. And we just like, yeah, pretend like it's not there. But it never goes away. In fact, it just festers. 
All that negative stuff, the only way we'll ever get free of it is by looking at it and dealing with it. And once you realize that this isn't a, a, a detraction, once you realize that these imperfections, these scars, this is the material out of which God's going to tell a beautiful story. And it's the story of you. <laughs> and throughout eternity, this will be part of your glory. God takes your ashes and makes something beautiful out of them. God takes the mistakes and weaves them into something beautiful. Every wrong done, he weaves into this Kitsugi masterpiece. When the kingdom's come in fullness, we are all going to be God's masterpieces, showing and display how God, the love of God has glued us together and repaired us and beautified our scars so we no longer hide them. We put them on display. Look what God has done. That is the power of the cross, folks. That's the power of the cross. Amen. Amen. So I, I went to the U of M and I had this heirloom, an heirloom of sorts. Was a, the heirloom was this precious Bible that's been handed down for centuries that I thought was inerrant because I was told it was inerrant. Not one mistake in that thing. I, it's this precious thing here. And I, all my faith was based on this. And as I shared last week, it took one class, just one class in the Bible as literature to completely blow that sky high because it's not hard to do. It's very hard to defend the, this claim that there's no errors in the Bible. In fact, I think it's impossible. And, and, and so my faith came falling to the ground. One of the reasons I wrote Inspired Imperfection is that I'm tired of seeing young people especially uh, leave their church and head to the university and they're taught that the Bible's got, it's, it's a perfect book, it doesn't have any errors, and they take one class or read one book or have one conversation with somebody who knows better and boom, their faith gets blown up. And, and if they're taught that if the Bible's the word of God, it's got to be inerrant, well then when you come to the conclusion that it's got some errors, you come to the conclusion that it can't be divinely inspired and your faith falls to the ground. At least if that's, why, if, if that's what your faith was, was based on. And mine was. And, and I went into a state of despair that I'm sure was similar to the kind of despair that the disciples went through when their heirloom idea of what a Messiah was going to be, supposed to be, got blown to the ground. They were expecting a, as common sense always does, we want a Messiah that will serve us, a Messiah that fits our categories, uh, and a Messiah is going to come. And, and, and since God's victorious, well, the, the Messiah's got to be victorious. And since God's pro-Israel, the Messiah's going to be pro-Israel. Uh, and, and since God's uh, anti-anyone who's against uh, Israel, well, then the Messiah's going to be anti-Roman. They, they thought they knew. They had, it all made sense. Jesus shows up and doesn't do any of that. He gets himself crucified. Boom! That's what happens when you have an ass assumption. I, I, this assumption that a perfect God must breathe a perfect book. Who came up with that rule? Really? Because it's everywhere. Everyone's taught this. Perfect God must. It's just common sense. Since when does the God who's revealed on Calvary fit our common sense? Always be suspicious. If your God completely makes perfect sense, I tell people, look, be, be suspicious. If your God doesn't look weak and foolish, probably you're not worshiping the God who's revealed on the cross because the cross is specifically weak and foolish. The wisdom of God looks foolish and the power of God looks weak. That's what Paul says. So if, you're, if your image of God isn't weak and foolish, well, you need to seriously look at whether or not you're really basing all your information about God on the cross. Paul said this, and we, we talked about this last week, um, how in, in Colossians it says that all of the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge are hidden in, in Christ. Christ is the mystery of God, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everyone say all the treasures. All are there some treasures that aren't in Christ? Well, apparently not. Yeah. Where are they all? In Christ. So if all the treasures of God, wisdom, and knowledge are found in Christ, why would we look anywhere else to figure out what God is like? Think about it. It's all right there. 
I suspect, and I can't prove this, but here's a little theorem I'm thinking about. What if every mistake the church has ever made has been the result of us not trusting that all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge are found in the crucified Christ? So instead, we go over there and over here and over there, and we check our, our, our common sense and whatever. It always screws things up. A perfect God must reveal himself through, through a perfect book. Um, look at the cross. Is that how it happened on the cross? So it, ask the question. Instead of assuming we know what a perfect book lo- or an inspired book looks like, because we've never had one before, right? So no one's got, like, we can't compare it with anything. So instead of assuming we know what it will look like when God breathes a book, how about we just sit at the foot of the cross and learn? How did God breathe the revelation of, of, of God, God's self on the cross? How does that happen? Now here, here's the thing. People assume, since Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed, right? And when we breathe, it's a unilateral activity. We, we, we don't need any partnership with anybody to do it. It's, it's a one-way thing. So they get the, the assumption is that if God breathed the Bible, well, it's like this. God went, <gasps> and out comes the Bible. Floats down to the ground. And see, if that was the case, we would have a God style running throughout the whole thing, wouldn't we? In fact, if that was the case, nothing should affect what comes out uh, as a result of God's breathing other than what God intended, so it would be perfect, right? That's why you think that it must be an inerrant Bible. A perfect God must breathe a perfect book. But look at the cross. Look at the cross. Um, is that how God breathed the cross? The cross reveals God acting toward us, right? God, God's the one who came up with the plan of salvation. God took the initiative to uh, become incarnate. God put himself in a position where the, the wicked people would, would, would arrest him and get, get, get crucify him. And so God took the initiative. All the teachings are God taking the initiative. God's the one who stooped an infinite distance to come down and be in solidarity with us as we are. But the revelation of God on the cross also involved God allowing people to impact him and to condition what resulted from his breathing. So, so it, it wasn't God who did any of the violence towards Jesus. That was all done by human beings who spit on him, who tortured him, who sucked a spear in his side. All the violence done to Jesus, everything that makes the cross look ugly, it was done not by God acting toward us, but by God humbly allowing people to act toward him and conditioned what resulted from God's breathing. So when God breathes the revelation of the cross... It looks beautiful in so much as insofar as it reveals God coming to us, stooping this infinite distance, but it's also horrifically ugly because it reveals God humbly allowing people to act toward him. And so the cross is beautiful to the degree that it reflects God acting toward us, but it's horrendously ugly to the degree that it reflects God allowing us to act toward him. But it's all God breathed. God didn't just breathe the beauty, he breathed the whole thing. The beauty and the ugly they stepped into. And that's how the cross tells the story of a beautiful God who's redeeming a people who are stuck in ugliness by coming into solidarity with our ugliness and beautifying us, leaving the scars in place to tell the story of how his beautiful love has overcome all wrongs. Uh, it, it's, so the cross, it, it, God breathes relationally. God breathes in partnership with others. And he honors the personhood of those he partners with because he doesn't lobotomize them or coerce them into having true thoughts. He leaves that in place, and that's part of how he reveals himself. So Paul says here, this is a God-breathed passage, 1 Corinthians 1.17. We just looked at it. I don't know who I baptized. That's a God-breathed statement. That's as inspired, if you believe in the plenary inspiration of the Bible, the full inspiration of the Bible, that is as God-breathed as any passage of the Bible. And yet, it says, I don't know who I baptized. No, I'm pretty sure God knows who Paul baptized. Would you agree with that? God knows who Paul baptized, but Paul doesn't. But notice this, God doesn't then download his perfect memory into Paul. 
coercively making Paul have a perfect memory. He doesn't do that. No, God's not a God of coercion. The, the cross is the power of God, and the cross is all about influential love. So God influences the people he breathes through as far as possible, but, but when, when further influence would result in coercion, God stops and accepts the person as they are with their imperfect memory, with their screwy ideas about God as a warrior God, with their cultural condition perspective. God adopts all of that and breathes through all of that. And the Bible is the more beautiful because of that. God leaves the scars of Paul's faulty memory in place because it's that scar that shows the power of the cross. Are you finding me on this? It's so important that we keep our eyes fixed on the cross because the cross turns everything upside down. What you thought you knew about power, what you thought you knew about inspiration, everything is turned upside down because God always uses the foolish things to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the strong. Uh, it, it's, no, see, those scars there are beautiful. The whole Bible, you can think of it like this. The Bible is beautiful as a work of art because... If you construe it as kintsugi art, the Bible is a kintsugi masterpiece. And you see, Paul's saying his statement would be less beautiful if he was inerrant, if he was perfect, if he spoke with eloquent wisdom. The cross would not be magnified as much. So the, the lack of eloquence and lack of wisdom is a good thing. It glorifies God. And now you can say that exact same thing about every mistake in the Bible, every inaccuracy, every contradiction. We don't need to be embarrassed by it. To be embarrassed by it is not to trust God's artwork. God is, if we know anything about the God revealed in the cross, it's that he takes the worst and brings out the best of it. Hallelujah. Uh, he does it in our life, and he's doing it with the people of Scripture. And I'll end with this. When you can see the kintsuku, I'm probably butchering that name, but when, when you can see that art, that the, the defects, are, there's a beauty to them. The humanness that God could use, that, there's a beauty to that. And once you begin to see that, I find that just like happens with people when they have their heirlooms restored with kintsugi art, um, it, there's a personal bond that happens there that goes beyond what, what, what was there before. And when you can begin to see the beauty of how God worked with these people in the Bible and all their imperfections and all their mistakes and all their humanness, he leaves it in place and still accomplishes his purposes through them. Well, when you see that, you realize that what's going on with these people in the Bible is exactly what's going on in you. It's the love of God restoring creation with this Golden joinery, the golden joinery of God's perfect love. And the Bible reflects that. The cross reflects it. Our own lives reflect it. Folks, I, it's, I think it's very important, very, very important that we all hang on to tightly the, the, the full inspiration of the Bible. I talked about this last week. But I think it's very important that we don't pin the inspiration of the Bible on it being inerrant, on it being perfect by human standards. No, it is perfect. But not by our standards, but by God's standards. It's perfectly imperfect for all the reasons that the cross is perfectly imperfect. It's horrifyingly ugly and beautiful for all the reasons that the cross is horrifyingly ugly and beautiful. Uh, it, it, it reflects the wisdom of God, but it also reflects the foolishness of human beings, just like the cross is both the wisdom of God and the foolishness. I could go on forever, but i got to stop. Uh, embrace the Bible as fully inspired and accept it as perfect just as it is. Hallelujah. We just stand. Glory. I encourage us. Invite Jesus into the, the faults of your life. And that takes place in the inner sanctuary, in the, in, in, in the inner sanctum, which is the imagination. Uh, if you want more on that, there's several books out there that could, could help you with that. But it's important that we let Jesus glue us back together with that beautiful glue that beautifies the ugly, uh, brings good out of evil, redeems the world. If you're in agreement with that, say, oh, if you're here and need any prayer, come on up here and pray with the prayer teams. If you're here this morning and are not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to consider that and come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to explain to you what that's all about. So if we, as we leave here, can we do it as a people?
who confess that we're broken, we're all broken. If you want more on that, there's several books out there that could, could help you with that. But it's important that we let Jesus glue us back together with that beautiful glue that beautifies the ugly, uh, brings good out of evil, redeems the world. If you're in agreement with that, say, oh, if you're here and need any prayer, come on up here and pray with the prayer teams. If you're here this morning and are not a follower of Jesus,